Sefer Bamidbar comes to a conclusion with Parshas Masay, where we read predominantly, certainly initially, and this is where the Parsha gets its name from, we learn about the various travels that the Jewish people had in their 40 years of wandering in the Midbar in the desert. And the Torah lists with great detail through the opening of this Parsha 42 locations, 42 places that the people came and went from over those 40 years. The obvious question is, why would the Torah feel the need to include this, and certainly to include it with such <clears throat> great and lengthy detail? What is so important for us to know about the names and the various places in the desert of all things where the Jewish people were just wandering seemingly aimlessly and circuitously round and about for 40 years? We know that Torah is careful with every word, and here we have 49 psukim worth of information, which seems to be not the most important, and let's be honest, whether we're learning this on our own or listening to it in the Torah in shul, far from the most scintillating section of the Torah. Why the need for all this detail? Interestingly, one approach which stands out from all others in the Rishonim is the Eben Ezra, <coughs> who suggests that when the Torah says here in Pasuk Beis that the Eben Ezra very originally and daringly suggests that the Alpi Hashem, that this was all done by the command and the word of Hashem, that's referring only to the actual Motzeem, the actual travels, the coming and going. But the first part of the Pasuk, the Yichtov Moshe, that decided, Moshe decided to write this down, that was because Moshe decided. It was not at Sivoy Hashem. They traveled based on Alpi Hashem. They traveled based on God's word and command. But the decision to include these 49 psukim, this detailed travelogue in the Torah, says Ibn Ezra, that was Moshe's own idea. Not clear for the Ibn Ezra why Moshe would do it, but that, says Ibn Ezra, was not at Sivoy Hashem. That was not Alpi Hashem. The traveling was from Hashem. The writing down was Moshe's own initiative. Not surprisingly, many Mepharshim, no less than the Ramban, the Barbanel, the Rambam, others, reject strenuously and strongly this opinion of the Ibn Ezra. First of all, on the face of it, Hayitachain, would Moshe add, would he amend, would he change the Torah text on his own? Secondly, it doesn't seem to be, make any sense. There's no need, if, if that's the case, according to Ibn Ezra, that we're stressing Al-Pi Hashem, that the Jewish people traveled based on God's command, but that's something that's already been made clear previously in the Pasuk. We know that they only traveled when Hashem told them to travel. So what would be the purpose of the Pasuk Bichlal, according to Ibn Ezra? Moreover, the Rambam in Mor Nevuchim understands and stresses the fact that the, ek, the end of the Pasuk, Al-Pi Hashem, is Dafka coming to teach us, in essence, opposite of Ibn Ezra. It's Dafka coming to teach us that the writing of this chapter in the Torah is specifically and deliberately Al-Pi Hashem, because otherwise we would have thought, what's the point? So the Torah tells you, no, there is a point. Hashem told Moshe, include these 49 psukim, write this detailed travelogue. Okay, we you know, kind of accept that. That's certainly the majority view. It's the view we would more intuitively assume. Ibn Ezra is quite a chiddush. But what it doesn't tell us is, what is the point? We understand why Ibn Ezra would say what he would say. We understand why the Rambam would think there's a need to tell us that it's from Hashem. We don't yet know what is the point, what is the benefit. So briefly, three beautiful ideas in the classical Mepharshim. Rashi here in the opening of the Parsha quotes a tradition from Rav Moshe Hadarshan that the Detailed listing of all of these locations is a way of showing Hashem's compassion and mercy. Chasadov shel hamakum. After all, we can do the math, we can come up with a, rea- you know, a basic sense of what happened over these 40 years. And basically what comes out is over 40 years, the Jewish people didn't actually do as much traveling as we might have thought. After all, when we look carefully, we see 14 of the locations all happened in the first year. 
before the Maragdim. That wasn't a punishment at all. It was a busy year, but that wasn't some strenuous punishment or torturous thing. Eight were in the last, in the final year. Which means that over the course of 38 years, the bulk of their time in the Midbar, they only made 20 stops. And, you know, 20 stops out of 38 years is not as crazy as we might have seemed. It wasn't that the Jewish people were traveling every minute. They actually had great lengths of time where they were in one place and could settle in and kind of have a relatively normal life. So it's part of the compassion of Hashem that we didn't have to travel too much as we might have thought. The Rambam himself in Moranavuchim gives a different, very interesting suggestion. The Rambam suggests that the greatest miracle of all was the Jewish people's survival in the Midbar for 40 years with really nothing to eat other than the miraculous water or really only eating the mon. That's a greater miracle than Yitzhak Mitzrayim or Kriyas Yamsuf or one-time events. This is 40 years of any food just living on the mon. However, says the Rambam, the nature of things is miracles are only clear and provable to the people who saw them. But over the centuries, over the generations, people would naturally start to doubt and wonder whether these really took place. Maybe there really was no miracle. Maybe the Jewish people, even if you believe they spent 40 years in the desert, but maybe they were located someplace very close to an inhabited area, someplace to a civilization where people lived, and therefore they naturally had access to food and water. Kamash Malon says the Rambam, the Torah goes out of its way to list these 42 locations so we can identify them and know that, in fact, all these locations were nowhere near where other people lived or where there were not natural food or water sources. And therefore it's a highlight of Marashem's compassion, but the great miracle that Hashem did for us, sustaining us for those 40 years. And last but not least, the Malbim has a beautiful, beautiful interpretation. He says, the detailed list gives us a clue to the goal of the journey. After all, in Posak Aleph in the Parsha, it states, It stresses that this is the journey the Jewish people took from when they left Egypt. But asks the Malbim, why does the Torah emphasize <coughs> where they were coming from and never mention <clears throat> Excuse me. where they were going to. Usually the destination is the goal of a journey. And yet here there's no mention that they were going to Israel, just that they were leaving the Mitzrayim. Answers the Malbim to teach us that the Ikar of this journey was not its destination, although that was important, but the Ikar of the particular destination in the 40 years was the departure. Not only for the Jews to leave Mitzrayim, but to get Mitzrayim out of the Jews. For them to purify themselves. If the goal had been merely to get from one place to another, from Eretz Yisrael, from Egypt to Mitzrayim, from Egypt to Eretz Yisrael, excuse me, they could have had a relatively quick and short journey. The lengthy route was chosen because he, we needed this much time to purify ourselves, step by step, location by location, to be ready to enter into Eretz Yisrael. It was only then, when we finally had gone through all these 40 years and 42 locations, we were on the level to exchange what he said was the simlosem hatsoim, the gross clothing that we were wearing, and put on the holy clothing of Tahar and Kedusha to be appropriate to enter Eretz Yisrael. Towards the end of Parshas Masai, we have a section that deals with Unfortunately, murder, whether it's accidental murder, b'shogeg, or even deliberate, rutsicha b'mezid. And the Torah has a somewhat enigmatic phrase in Pasuk at the end of Parak Lamed Hay, in Pasuk Lamed Gimel, where the Torah tells us, Lo tachanifu es ha'aretz asher atem ba. What does that mean, lo tachnifu, the world? So Rashi explains from the Targum, lo tarshion, don't bring evil, don't bring guilt upon the land in which you are living in. Ki adam hu yachnif es aretz, if you spill blood, that will bring guilt, that will bring evil into the land. Ul aret lo yuchapar ladam asher shufachba ki im badam shofo. And the earth will not forgive the blood that has been spilled there unless you spill the blood of the perpetrator, of the murderer, of the man or woman who had committed the murder. It's a very important and 
understandable pasuk, as it were, the value of human life, the prohibition and morality of murder, how that can contaminate the land of Israel. However, as Rav Moshe Feinstein asks in his Sefer, Darash Moshe, why would the Torah choose to make this point in this pasuk by using such an awkward term as tachanifu, or yachanif? We're familiar with this phrase much more commonly from the prohibition of chanifa. Chanifa usually means flattery. There's a prohibition to flatter, excessively flatter people who don't really deserve it. That itself is a something from the Torah that frowns upon. And why would we use a term that, in its more natural understanding, typically understood, means not to flatter? So we need Rashi and the Targum to help us figure out that in this context it means something different. But why use that term? Wouldn't there be a much easier phrase that we could have used to make the point in the Pasuk? Why use this borrowed term, which usually and literally means don't flatter? So Ramosha, in order to answer this question, gives, it's a very short piece actually, but I think a very profound uh, interpretation in which he suggests that this pasuk is coming to, in this choice of word, actually highlights the fundamental difference in the value system expressed in the legal system of the non-Jewish society as opposed to in Jewish society. In the non-Jewish society, over time and over history, says Ramosha, in the best case scenario, and unfortunately there have been many societies that have been far from the best case. But in the best case scenario, when they enact laws such as don't kill or don't steal and things like that, it's for a stated purpose of tikkun ha'olam, or or Moshe refers to as yishuv ha'olam, the better ordered and running of society in which people can live without fear that, you know, if they go to work one day, they'll come home and their house will be robbed, if they can go to work one day without worrying about being killed. You can't have a society run that way. You can't have a yishuv ha'olam that runs that way. And in fact, this is a very legitimate value that the Torah itself and Chazal themselves endorse, as the Mishnah and Ramosha quotes this in Perkyavos, the famous Mishnah in Perkimol tells us that for Jews who find themselves in a uh, guests as guests in a foreign society, we should be davening for the successful Shlomo Shalmachos, for the successful running of society by that local government. If people can't live with a proper sense of uh, respect or even fear for the law and order that comes from on high, from the government and its police force, etc., without that the sense of respect or even fear of authority, people will, as the Mishnah says graphically, People would swallow each other whole. In other words, there would be total anarchy without the imposed order from the government. And we recognize that Yishuv HaOlam and Tikkun HaOlam is something very legitimate. We would even daven for it. Ramosha, however, goes one step further. He says, if you want to understand the non-Jewish societies, you have to take this phrase very seriously and even literally. The Yishuv HaOlam, or the Tikkun HaOlam, puts the emphasis on the Olam, on the earth, or on society. The goal is what's best for society. What's best for society is to treat the individuals with respect and respect their property and person. But the goal is the betterment of society. And therefore, says Ramosha, if you would come up with a situation in which they determined that for the betterment of society, certain people can be killed, then that could be rationalized. Because after all, the goal is the betterment of society. So for example, says Ramosha, what about euthanasia or mercy killings, people who may not have that much time to live or what we would consider by societal standards a quote-unquote quality of life. Maybe it's a drain on resources, it's not really respecting their life, there's no need for their life anymore. Maybe we could easily rationalize killing such people. After all, it could be understood and rationalized as being better for society. That's better for Yeshuv HaOlam. Rav Moshe himself says it's known that as people get into their advanced age, sometimes the medical system, the doctors, or the hospital don't put as much effort into extending their life because, you know, they're old anyway. Says Ramosha, we know, unfortunately, that some of the most civilized, quote-unquote, societies in human history, some of the most civilized, quote-unquote, countries in human history are ones that preach the Tikkun HaOlam, and they were among, unfortunately, sometimes the most cruel and deadly. All of this, says Ramosha, even though it's coming from 
a somewhat good place, but could become corrupted. All of it can be contrasted, says Ramosha, with why the Torah and the Jewish value system, even when it comes to the very same overlapping rules, like don't murder or don't steal and the like. We keep those mitzvot because it is Ratzon Hashem. And the Ratzon Hashem in this area, the will of God, the Torah value in this area is that the Torah teaches us that the goal is not the olam, the society, but rather what the Ramosha refers to as chashivos ha'adam, the innate importance of every individual, what we would call kavar habrios, human dignity. We believe as a Torah value that every human being, if you even save one life, it's like we makayim the whole world. It's not The goal isn't society, the goal is the dignity and the preservation of life of every individual. Or Moshe refers to, again, as I say, as chashivos ha'adam. And therefore, says Ramosha, even if it would be determined in a specific case that it is not in the furtherance of yeshuv ha'olam, the betterment of society, to save this person, it wouldn't matter. Ramosha gives an example. Let's say someone is cognitively deficient, what we might call now special needs, or someone has not that much time to live, chaye sha'ah. Nevertheless, despite whatever rationalizations you could make for not giving them the support they need, let alone killing them, it would be obviously in both cases completely prohibited from the Torah's perspective because we focus on the dignity and the innate worth of each individual person. Not only would it be prohibited, it would even be Machal Shabbos to save their life. We don't look at grand rationalizations and schemes for society. We look at the innate dignity and sanctity of every individual. Coming back to our Pasuk, Ramosha explains so beautifully. The Pasuk as it's summarizing the evil of murder, is telling us not only the deliberate, you know, callous murder, that's obviously prohibited, but even lo tachnifu esaretz, don't flatter the earth, the world, so to speak, and say, well, the ultimate purpose of murder and those prohibitions is the betterment of the arts of the society. And therefore, if you flatter the earth, the society, and say that's really the goal, then you could come up with rationalizations where in certain specific cases we could even lose life. On the contrary, realize that it's not the Aretz, but the Adam who is the Ikar. And even though we value Tikkun Olam, that's only when it is Bamahu Shaddai. Towards the end of Parshas Matos, we read about the famous discussions and somewhat tense negotiations between B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain and Moshe. The tribes of God and Ruvain Later, the Torah throws in half of Menashe as well. But initially, all we hear about is God and Ruvain. They approach Moshe and ask to be able to stay on Evra Yardin, on the eastern side of the Yardin, and not cross over into Eretz Yisrael. In the beginning of Perak Lamed Beis, the Torah introduces us to the story by telling us that they had Mikne Rav. They had lots of cattle, and when they saw the land on Evra Yardin and how plush it was and how good it would be for their animals, they desired to settle there because it would be a good place for their cattle. A little bit later in the story, a little bit later in the parak in Pasuk Tetzayin, we read about their specific request where they ask Moshe for this ability and they promise that even though they will go over and help their fellow Jews fight in the war to say, settle and conquer Eretz Yisrael, but in the meantime they will build Gidros Tzon, they will build places for their cattle as well as Arim for their children, cities for their children, for their families. Eventually there's a back and forth, but when Moshe finally gives them the permission to fulfill that condition, to fight with their fellow Jews, but yet, yes, they could settle on Evra Yardin, Moshe repeats the two uh, issues that they had wanted to do, the things that they requested, but Moshe deliberately, clearly, and noticeably changes the order. He gives them permission to build Arim Latapchem, you can build cities for your children, and Gideros Lutzonachem, and you can build the pens, the different places for your cattle. 
Noticing this change in the order, Rashi quotes from the Medrash Tanchuma in Simen Zayin, and this is really exactly what the Medrash says in Bamidbar Rabbah and Parsha Chaf Beis Ostes, that Moshe switched the order as a musr to them. In the words of the Medrash, the people made the Iker Tafel and the Tafel Iker. When they were asking Moshe for the, biddle, the ability to stand Eber Yardain, they prioritized that which shouldn't have been prioritized, which should have been secondary. They made the Tafel into an Iker. Instead, Moshe taught them that they need to make the Iker Iker and the Tafel Tafel. They prioritized their money over their children. They first said, we'll build Gidros Tzon, and only afterwards did they mention their children. But rather... Moshe says, you need to make the ikr ikr, you need to have the right priorities. You, on the other hand, he gives them Moser, Shechivavu es mamonam yoser min By you asking for places for your cattle first, it demonstrated that you prioritized, that you had more of a, a love of uh, and commitment to your cattle, your money, than your own children. Commenting on this back and forth and Moshe's Moser, by changing the order and saying, first comes your children, keep your priority street, keep the main thing, the main thing. The Medrash brings us a support for this, there is an allusion from the Pasuk in Koheles and Perik Yud, Lev Chacham Liyamino, Lev Kasil Li Smolo. And the Medrash interprets this, as we often find in Chazal, that Yamin, the right, is the stronger or the priority, and Smolo, the left, should be what is secondary or less important. And says the Medrash, Lev Chacham Liyamino, that refers to Moshe, that the heart of a Chacham, the wisdom of a wise man, is Liyamino. He understands that the important things should be the Yamin, that which take priority. However, says the Medrash, Lev Ksil Lismolo, that refers to Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain. The fool focuses on the smolo, the things which should be tafel, the things which should be not as important, the things which should be secondary. And it's not just a moral failure. You see from the Pasuk, it's also just simply foolish. The Medrash continues and says that as a punishment, Moshe pointed out their mistake. But the Medrash adds, which you don't find in the Chumash, that Hashem, as it were, says to the people as a punishment, because you prioritize your cattle over your money, the punishment is that you will have no bracha from this decision, despite the permission to stay in every yard, and you'll have no bracha. That's somewhat uh, mysterious and a little bit unclear what it's referring to, but it's clear that actually, if you look carefully in the Medrash, it's an allusion to something that was previously, more clearly and explicitly established, uh, a little bit earlier in a previous Medrash, in Bavid Baraba, in the same uh, Parsha Chavbez, but in Os Zion, there on the initial Pasuk of the story, where we read that the Bnei Gad Bnei Ruvain had lots of cattle, Mik Nerav, so there the Medrash already makes this point that they prioritize their money, their Parnassa, over, but here the Medrash focuses on Eretz Yisrael, they focused it more on Eretz Yisrael, their money that they could make outside of Israel was more important than going into Eretz Yisrael, and therefore the Medrash says, their punishment would be, Lafichach Galu Tchila Mikol Shiftehem, that they would be uh, forced into Golus, before any of their brothers, before all the other Shvatim. And this is referring to a tradition that goes back, is sourced to a Pasuk in Divrei Hayamim Aleph Perakei, that in the time of the first uh, Chorban, even we know that uh, Yehuda was, the, the, uh, that the ten tribes, excuse me, were, were put into Gaulus before the, the two tribes, before Yehuda and Binyamin, but even in the Malchus Yisrael, the Pasuk says, that God and Ruvain, the people in Evra Yardain, were exiled first. And why? Why were they exiled first? What's the cause? So here the Medr says, Al Shehifrishu Atmam Min Achechem Bishvil Kinyanam. You separated yourself from your fellow Jews from the other tribes 
because of your money. So in sum, if we put together the two, the two Midrashim, the second one, which is brought by Rashi, but we look inside to that second Medrash, and we go back to the initial, the first Medrash, the two Midrashim, in sum, we see something very fascinating, that the flaw of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain was their prioritizing of money. This is not to demonize money, making a good living, capitalism, nothing like that, obviously not. But you can skew your priorities, even something that's legitimate can be overemphasized, and you can mess up your priorities. And a paradigm for this mistake of giving too much of an emphasis to money is considered by the Medrash Bnei Gun Bnei Ruvain. And when you put the Medrashim together, it's really fascinating. I don't think we appreciate this. According to the Medrash, they prioritized money over their children. That's what Rashi quotes. They prioritized money over Eretz Yisrael. And they prioritize money over being together with their fellow Jews, with the majority of the tribes. And I think that if we think about this, this is really a tremendous lesson about the potential uh, destructive power of being too focused on money. That if you really become obsessed with it, none, there's never such thing as enough. And it really can destroy everything and it can take the space of all the other values that you know really should come first. The outset of Parshas Maseh lists the 42 places that the Jewish people stayed and traveled from and to during their 40-year sojourn in the desert. Rashi, in explaining why this is important for us to know what the purpose of this travelogue is, quotes in one of his explanations the tradition that he got from Rabbi Tanchuma, from the Medrash Tanchuma, who compares this in a mashal, in a parable, to a king whose son was ill. and He took his son and he traveled with him a great distance in order to find the right doctor, the right medicine, in order to heal him. Thankfully, it was successful. And on their way back home, as they reversed their trip, they went in the opposite direction of their journey. They passed all the places that they had been. Each time the father took the opportunity to remind his son when he would point out a place, Kan Yashanu, here's where we slept. Kanu Karnu, here's where we felt cold. Here's where you didn't feel well, etc., etc. Question is, what is the deeper message of this mashal? What is the nimshal? What is the lesson we are supposed to take? What is the tanhuma and Rashi trying to convey? Rav Schwab in his Sefer Ma'ayan Beis HaShoeva beautifully explains that to answer this, we need to first answer something very strange in the entire listing of these 42 places where the Jewish people traveled, somewhat inextricable even about this description, about this travelogue. On the one hand, even when the locations of major events are mentioned, the actual events, the major events, are never referred to. There is no mention, even though this is a description of their 40-year traveling in the desert, everything that happened, all the places they went to, I should say, but there's never any mention of Kriyas Yamsuf, not of the Mon, Mara, Matan Torah, the Mishkan, nothing, the water, nothing. And yet, on the other hand, every once in a while, the Torah does interrupt the list of places in order to mention what took place at a specific location. But all of these references are actually incredibly curious because none of them seem to be that important at all. So, for example, in Pasuk Dalid, it mentions Mikabrim that at a certain time and place, the, Jew, the Egyptians were burying their dead. When they were busying with their de- busy burying their dead, also that uh, Hashem had judged their idols. So what? Pasuk Zion, it mentions, that we got to this place by Chiros, and it was near Baal Tzafon. What, is that? what does that have to do with anything? Why do we care about that? Pasuk Ches, it mentions that it took three days to get to Mara. 
In no other time does it mention how long it took to get from one place to another. Why here all of a sudden? Pasuk Tess, it mentions that in Elim there were 12 wells and 70 day trees. So what? Why is this important, especially when you consider all the things that are not mentioned? So Schwab explains so beautifully and profoundly that the theme is that these were places where something happened and the Jewish people should have and could have been inspired, but they weren't. Here, getting back to the mashal in the Tanchuma that Rashi quotes, here in this place, they slept. They should have been aroused by Hashem's miracles, but they slept through it. Here they should have been on fire and inspired, but here they cooled off. So for example, Rav Schwab goes through some of the ones we mentioned. When it says that in Pesach Dalad that the Egyptians were burying their dead, says Rav Schwab, the Jewish people should have thought about that for a second. Egyptians don't bury their dead, they embalm them. Why are they burying their dead? Ah, so that's what the Pesach says, that Hashem had, so to speak, done judgment with their idols. Hashem had, so to speak, defeated, killed their idols, i.e., they themselves realized that their Avodah Zarah was foolish and foolishness and there was no reason to embalm for that idol. So you see the incredible thing of Hashkacha. Even the Egyptians are recognizing the truth of Hashem and the foolishness of their Avodah Zarah. The Jewish people should have been inspired by that. They should have seen the Hashkacha in the Egyptians burying. But they didn't because they were sleeping. Kan Yashananu. When they came to the place with exactly 12 wells, corresponding to the number of tribes, and exactly 70 day trees, corresponding to the number of the elders, the Shivim Zekenim. Instead of realizing this wasn't a coincidence, but this was done with great hashkacha, they missed it. Karnu, Karnu. Here they were cooled off. Instead of being on fire with inspiration, they cooled off. Similarly, it says it took three days to get to Marah. Why do we stress that? It says Roshwab, because in only three days, after having just experienced Kriyas Yamsuf, they were already complaining. All that inspiration, all that fire, and being excited from Kriyas Yamsuf, and in three days it had already cooled off. What a beautiful and profound interpretation, not only of this section of the Torah, which so often we find boring and tedious, and it really we see as such a beautiful muster and message, but also such a beautiful interpretation of this medrash quoted by Rashi. And I think that... It, really is a great Musar for us to think about. What is the purpose of reviewing this trip? It's not focusing on all the accomplishments. There is time for that in life, for sure. But the main thing we need to be focusing on is not patting ourselves on the back. The main purpose in life and the main purpose of reviewing this trip was focusing on those opportunities where we fell short, where we made mistakes, and lessons that can be learned from them. We each have to consider all the different events in our life. Some of them, thankfully, time of great bracha. But did we see... The Hashkacha? Did we thank Hashem? Did we see the great kindness that Hashem gave us in our lives? Did we use those as opportunities to come closer to Hashem, to be inspired? And unfortunately, the same is true, just as importantly, if not more so, Chas v'shalom lo aleinu, if we have difficult times in our life. Did we see the Yad Hashem? Do we understand what the lesson is? Do we try to at least understand what the lesson is? Did we learn from them? Each of the opportunities, the various journeys in our own life, all of the ma'asim, the motzeem, the ma'asehem in our own life are all opportunities to see the Yad Hashem, are all opportunities to grow and to be inspired. But only if we're awake and only if we are alive, not cooled off, not chilling, and certainly not if we're sleeping. What a profound and important life message in Musr that we can learn thanks to Rav Schwab 
from the opening section in Parshas Masei. Parshas Matos, we read about the Jewish army returning victorious from their battle with Midian, at which time Hashem commands them to purify the kalim that they have obtained as booty in that war. And the Gemara in Masech Tavod Zara and Afayin Hay explains that in fact two different halachos are being mentioned in these psukim. Number one is if you take possession of used kalim from a non-Jew, then they need to be koshered because those kalim have absorbed the taste of the non-kosher food that the original owner had used in cooking or eating on those kalim. And therefore, in order to eat kosher food from them, you first need to kosher them. However, there's a second halacha, the one which I'd like to focus on in this brief shear, and that is even if it's completely new kalim, never been used by the non-Jewish owner, nevertheless, these kalim need to go to the mikvah. They don't need koshering, but they need tefillah. They need to be toveled in the mikvah, as the Yerushalmi says, in a somewhat parallel way to the way a ger, a convert, goes to the mikvah as he's elevating his kedusha status when he becomes a Jew. So to these kalim, now that they're going to be in Jewish possession, we elevate their status by putting them in the mikvah. Most Rishonim hold that these psukim are a bona fide source, and therefore that this is a mitzvah da'oraisa. And there is a minority view that sees the psukim in our parsha and the Gemara as merely being a hint, or a brief association, and that it's only an asmachta, and it's a mitzvah da'rabanan. But as I mentioned, the majority view is that this is a mitzvah mida'oraisa. Which kalim need to go to mikvah? So the Gemara explains that it's kalim that are going to be used either in food preparation or when eating, that will directly touch the food. What type of material do the kalim have to be made from in order to be obligated in tefillah? So the psukim themselves describe either gold or silver or other metals, six altogether. And this is in fact the halacha, that those are the six materials, the metals that are for sure obligated. However, the Gemara adds that in addition, kalim made out of glass should also be toveled, although most Rishonim view the extension of glass as being merely rabbinic, a dinder abanon, and therefore there can be various leniencies that come up with glass kalim, in which we'd be more lenient there than we would be with kalim made out of metals, which would be more strict, because that's clearly, according to the majority view, mida orisa. An interesting question in modern times was raised with the popularity of disposable uh, tins and utensils that are made from aluminum and other type of uh, metals. So because of their you know, chemical their composition, that they're from metal, aluminum, so l'chora, they should require tefillah. However, the Minchas Yitzchak, Dayan Weiss, and others are lenient based on the assumption that kalim, which are disposable, they're meant to be used once and then thrown out, that that type of temporary use, that one-time use, is not considered functional, and they may not even have the halachic status of a kli, and certainly even if they do, but the iser to use kalim was meant for a permanent long-term use, and not for things which are disposable and can only be used once. If a person intends to use what is usually referred to as a disposable tin, but you don't want to use it as a disposable, at least not right away, you want to wash it and reuse it and reuse it, so that is actually an interesting halachic question, whether in that case you would need to be told the kli, and if that is something that's relevant to you, you should ask your local rav. What about if you are a guest eating at a house, you're eating at your host's, and you have no doubt that the food is kosher, but for whatever reason you are sure that the kalim were never toveled. Are you, as the guest, allowed to eat from those kalim? The Shochanach rules in Simon Kufchaf that eating off of kalim, which were not toveled, is usr, not only for the owner, but even if you are a borrower or you rented the kalim from the owner. So, l'chora, this could be a problem for a guest in someone's house. Nevertheless, there are poskim who are 
uh, Makil, uh, the base Avi, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Libis, who was a great postdoc in America in the previous generation, he suggests that since a person who's eating at someone else's house, a guest, is not going to be financially responsible if a plate or a cup breaks in the meal, no one imagines that the host is going to charge the guest for that damage, that accidental damage. So in that case, as the Beis Yavi, you're eating at someone's house, you get invited over for a meal, you're not even considered a borrower, let alone a renter, and therefore he thinks the whole prohibition would not apply. Shlomo Zaman Orbach and others are not as sure, and they have other more cautious satarium, perhaps a plate or other things which are not as essential uh, to the food eating process might be allowed, whereas bowls or cups where you really can eat soup or drink uh, something, water or soda without the cup or the bowl, maybe they're more uncomfortable with the hetter, but I think many people, if they are in this difficult situation, uh, tend to rely on the more lenient view of the based avi. Uh, last but not least is a very interesting discussion I mentioned in the post game about what if you go to a hotel or a restaurant where again, the food is kosher, but you're not sure, or you maybe you are sure, that the kalim were not toveled. So, interestingly, the Shulchan Aruch rules, again, in Simon Kuf Chaf, that there's a heter called Klis Chora. If a Jewish owner purchased utensils, but never t- with the intention of eating with them personally, his main intention is to then sell them or rent them out for commercial use to someone else, then, for whatever reason, in the interim, he's using them, um, the Shulchan Aruch rules that Klis Chora, the original owner, the first owner, let alone the second one, has no chiyav. The Klis Chora are fundamentally excluded from the, pro- from the obligation of tefillah, and therefore there's no prohibition in using them. Despite that ruling of the Shulchan Aruch, the Taz and the Shach quote a, a minority view, which is Machmir, and say that since it's ultimately intended to be used for food, even though not by the owner who wants to make money off it, still you should do the tefillah, but without a bracha. Many poskim, including the Archa Shulchan, say that the minog is to be mekel, but others try to be machmir uh, for this view brought down by the Taz and the Shach. So this comes up, as I mentioned, when it comes to restaurants. So the Darke Tshuva and others think that a restaurant is no different than the Shulchan Aruch's case of Klis Chora, and therefore they think really one could be mekel. However, I would say it seems like the majority view is actually machmir, and they suggest that the case of the Shulchan Aruch is where there's something more indirect to, from when the owner bought the kalim and the second Jew eventually uses them, as opposed to when you talk about a restaurant or a hotel that's catering, or the whole purpose of buying those kalim were to then have other Jews eat from the kalim, that that would not be included in the heter, that these would need tefillah, and therefore it would be prohibited to be used without tefillah. However, uh, even these post-Gemara Machmir do suggest various heterim. As we mentioned, some say, well, maybe a plate might be better than other things, and uh, still other post-Gemara hold that really you could be mekel b'dievid on everything, l'chachila better to avoid it, but Rosham Zaman Orbach, and the Minchas and other do say that b'dievid, even in a restaurant, one would have the right to be mekel, even though they do argue l'chachila, those should have been toveled.